0: Mean O'Lion Lion Media and Sunseeker TV in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment present Black Arm of the Law.
1: Black, 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 black as always, black again, black like I never left. Welcome to another episode of the wonderful show called The Black Arm of the Law. Today's guest is a very special guest. He is a retired homicide detective who is personally, personally, and directly responsible for the investigation that resulted in the first successful gang prosecution in the history of Fulton County District Attorney's Office. He resides in Atlanta, GA. He also has a show on TV One called ATL Homicide, which is directly based on his amazing career. Welcome to the show, Brother David Quinn. Look, we're going to jump right into it. So you said you just came from a a, a height, and you said you you married Laura
0: Croft. Yes, 30 years ago, I married Laura Croft. Uh, Saw her at the police department. She was new. I didn't know what I was in for. So we got six kids later, and more hikes than I can count under my belt. And this is my this is my reality. That's awesome, man. She You, know, you, you got to keep up. I got to do push-ups every day you know, when she walks by. I mean, she's, you know, blood, muscle, and bone. I love it. I love it. So tell me about the first encounter. I'm in the worst precinct. 19, You know, in 1985, I get sent to the worst precinct in the city. But I loved it. I loved every minute of it. My wife, four years later, she comes in as a rookie. Four years in the worst precinct. They called it Dirty Three. I was like, you know. Oh uh, cop Jesus out there. I mean, I really loved it. She shows up there and I remember I was standing in line waiting for my patrol car to come in and switch out with the guys from the other shift, I saw this sister, and I told all the guys, "My boys in line waiting on our cars." I said, "I'm marrying her." You know, it was just crazy, but I ended up uh, within a month we were living together, and we've been together for 31 years, married for 30 of them. True story. That's
1: awesome. That's awesome, man. But but I'll, before we move forward, what was the line? What what did you say? What did you use? I want to hear the the. I want to hear the game. That you laid
0: down. <laughs> you know, it was uh it was just straight to the point. You know, I was just like, look, I'm trying to be with you. And I gave her a mint, right? I don't know what that was all about. That's what I had in my hand, and she gave it back to me. And I said, Oh yeah, so I'm into this. You know, we all got that lion, you know, we like a little chase. And I'm young, and I'm I'm full of I'm full of a lot of BS at this point in my life. You know, I'm 18 years after high school, I was on the police department, so I thought I knew everything. Well, I don't know. The sky opened up when I saw this sister. You know, she's from the hood. She's from the biggest housing. I heard she was from the biggest housing project in the city of Atlanta. It's called Perry Homes back in the day. We have no PJs now. Mm. And I yes. I said, I've always wanted to go into that project, but I never was assigned to that area. She was from there. I was like, there's the kismet right there. I got to be with her. I don't know what it was. She's just, she is my energy, you know, because she's nothing like me. She's laid back, she's cool. Right. But this sister's tough, man. I couldn't just have any sister taking care of me and me taking care of her. It had to be some had to be a challenge. And every day, Carl, it's a challenge. Every day.
1: Nice, man. Nice. That's beautiful.
0: All right, where are you from? Tell me about yourself. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I was born in Wilmington, Delaware. All right. My family in 1978 decided to jump into what people called the Black Mecca and go to Atlanta. You know, that great migration, you know, right before the 80s kicked loose. We were those people. My father came down here, got a job driving a Marta bus. He stayed there till he retired. And I was here since I was 14 years old in Georgia. And uh, big culture shock in 1978. I mean, it was not but biscuits and gravy down here. It wasn't no Asians. There were no Mexicans. It was black folk and white folk. Uh, I don't know if you heard of Old National Highway, but it was like 99% white. And, you know, that's where we went to live. And now it's just us, you know. So uh, Atlanta has changed so much, but it's still the same little Mayberry to me. As big as it tries to be, it's, it's little.
1: I spent a lot of time down there too, and you know, it it is a little uh, in certain areas. Time warp.
0: It really is, man. You know, it's dated. There's a lot of stuff they're not doing here yeah. that's been going on up, up top forever.
1: You know. Yeah, I've told people that, like, you know, that you know, like when you first go down there, you see it's very exciting, and it's like, oh my God, land of opportunity, and then you realize there's a low ceiling.
0: Yeah. And it's a lot of flexing. Uh, beautiful. See, I love Atlanta. My heart belongs to Atlanta. That's an... Uh, under- but this is... Uh, the, the flexing is the... Under- this is the art of high technology down here. I mean, and I can only say that because I love the place. It's some tricks. Right. <laughs> you know, don't believe what you think you believe when you meet somebody. You know, you got to conduct an investigation. <laughs> you know? Well, listen, I've always
1: said there's three different Atlantas... There's Atlanta, there's Atlanta, with no A, just Atlanta. Right. And then there's Atlanta. (laughs) Yeah,
0: you nailed it. You nailed
1: it. Was there an incident or was there a special uh, moment? Was there an aha moment that
0: led to you, you know, wanting to join law enforcement? So growing up in Wilmington, Delaware and moving to Atlanta when I was 14, while in Wilmington, I saw a lot of my cousins going to jail on the regular and not just jail, prison. So, visiting relatives on Sunday, I thought is what everybody did because that's what we did. Because uh, my mom's, you know, all her little cousins were like her little brothers. So, we carried them um, emotionally, you know, by going to visit them. And I just understood that. I wanted to, you know, ever since I was like six, because I was always in court with relatives and prisons. I just wanted to be the police to see if I could affect some kind of difference, some kind of change. Now, at six years old, I used to walk around with a cap gun thinking I was the cops. I mean, I really knew what I wanted to do early, and I wanted to do it in the city. When I got to Atlanta, I fell in love with it. I always just wanted to be a police officer. I saw some of my relatives going into the criminal justice system since they were juveniles. Uh, I had a father that, you know, used to threaten me not to be like them. But I love them, you know, because I grew up going to these prisons, visiting family. I just knew as even as a child, I wanted to be a a police officer. And once I got to Atlanta, it was sold. I was gonna be an Atlanta police officer. So two years after high school, literally, I'm on the Atlanta police department. I graduated in 1983, 85, I was swearing in. So what was your specialty? My thing was brother, when I got the police academy, they sent me to what they called Dirty Three. It was the dirtiest, most criminal, corrupt precinct in the city. A lot of cops have done fed time out of this precinct. It's a very busy precinct. I ended up staying there my first 10 years at night in the dark, in the PJs, serving my brothers and sisters. And that became my second home in the projects. I mean, the real bricks of Atlanta. So I was 20 years old. I was raised with these folks. And by the time I hit my 15th year, they sent me to Homicide and I was a detective. Mm -hmm. So I was in the streets for the first 15 years. After I left zone three, they sent me to Bankhead, if you know what that is. And I did five years out there. So look at it, you got 10 years in zone three, which was the nastiest precinct, going to Bankhead for five. In the 15th year, they make me detective. Guess who I'm going back in a necktie and a suit. I'm going back to these neighborhoods with these people I serve where I got all these relationships. So let's talk about that for a second, you
1: know, because we talk about that a lot on the show about officers either living or being from the areas that they are assigned to. And, you know, because building that relationship of trust or just in general, building a good relationship with the community allows for better policing. Absolutely. So what kind of um, relationships did you establish within the in the neighborhood?
0: I got sent to this project that was covered by Time Magazine in 1988. as the most violent neighborhood per 100,000 people in America, and I loved it because I can go get a plate of food and watch the, the the Super Bowl in living rooms in that project. It was called Mechanicsville. Now, I also dated you know you know a couple of young ladies in a neighborhood. One in particular for a long time. You know, as a young man before I got married. So not only was I there all night long from 11 p.m to 7 a.m i was coming back and picking shorties up and going out and eating dinner you know having a good time so i was a fixture in that neighborhood i wasn't just you know i wasn't just putting it out there for eight hours i just love that community those people the old ladies on the porch would tell you things and just give you insight as to what was going on out there people You know, talk about this no snitching rule out here, it's not about snitching, it's about protecting your neighborhood. And as a young beat cop in uniform, I fostered those relationships and it carried on when I became a detective. Those relationships are so important. That's what's wrong with policing right now across America. No one has tangible relationships and foundation in neighborhoods. I mean these cops just roll through the academy and they go all these different units, they don't establish themselves in that community they serve. That's the only way you win. I think that I think
1: that it's because of the narrative, right? One, that you're right. There's no investment. They don't have any investment or nothing vested in the areas that they are serving. So they don't have any relationships to preserve. They don't have any relationships to honor because at the end of the day, I think they've gotten what protect and serve me. I'll agree with you. Well, tell me during your time in those neighborhoods, was there ever, um, I wanna say a case that was either
0: difficult or stands out in your mind? So as a patrolman, you know, That's your beat. Those people are your people. You take care of them, you arrest them and you hold them when they lose their loved ones as a uniformed patrolman. I was in a beat so long working as a patrolman, you know, someone that people depended on. And and I depended on the people in the neighborhood for, for my own safety. I mean, think about it. I came on the department in 1985, they issued me a six shooter and a wooden stick painted black. Now, Crack wasn't even invented back in those days. I watched crack happen. I watched the dismantling of the black and brown families in Atlanta based off that dope. Now you can't win no battles when Joker's, you know, doing the New Jack City thing out there in 1987, 88, 89. The firepower is unbelievable. I didn't get an automatic weapon until like 1996. So you can't shoot your way out of, you know, incidents when I was coming along because you ain't have but six damn bullets. You had to have an understanding, they had to trust you. And so the trust was paramount. There were a lot of cops like me, it wasn't just me. That was the flavor of how things were, you know, that's how things were done back in the day. Cops spent time and went to diners in the hoods in these quote unquote marginalized neighborhoods as a course of business was just why we ran business. So you can't just treat people any old kind of way. This new mechanized police department I see across the across America, dude, we, we, we just had like um respect You know, we didn't shoot our way out of everything. I'm just seeing a a trend now. You can't ignore it. There's a lot of loose gunplay now when, in fact, we were taught to defuse situations early. And I'm not saying we got taught by the academy. Forget the academy. I'm talking about older vets whose places you took out there in the street. That's gone. The average age of cops now is like each department around America is like 22, 24 years old. I had old gristle dudes that showed me the way and that's just gone right now. Why do you think that is? It's it's just the way the world is now and you also have a cop and you have a suspect or intended suspect that have never even gotten a fist fight in middle school because the laws have changed last 25 years. You can't even fight in school and get the three days suspension like we used to get. You're going to jail, or juvenile. So you got two forces out there that have never been punched in the face before until a fateful moment on a 911 call and things go south. They, these cats don't know how to fight, man. I mean, it's just, they used to teach us to fight. And we, you know, people going to jail don't go peacefully. And so sometimes they used to get skinned up and sometimes I got skinned up, but people survived. You know what I mean? Right. This is more of a, I'm gonna use this taser. Or I'm gonna use this gun. I ain't going to Knuckle Junction with you. And that—that that has changed. We gotta—I think we gotta go backwards and borrow from the past to reimagine what policing looks like. Stop being so scared. Everybody's so scared to just interface with somebody physically and get them in custody. I mean, I- taser, taser. I—I'm sorry. I thought my knife was the taser.
1: I, I don't know what happened there. Yeah. I don't know about that. I've only been a cop for 30 years,
0: but I don't know how that happened. That's a sad situation. Um, I always rejected the taser. It came late in my career. I didn't want it. I just felt better with the hands. You, you know what I mean? And I was a detective my last mm-hmm. 15 years on the department. We didn't have no vests. We didn't have anything. I Always out in the street. You had one gun and you you had a mission. I don't know what happened out there. Uh, with that taser and the gun mix up that's i don't even i don't even know where to go with that mm-hmm. it's but that's the that's the that's where policing has gone nobody wants to like be in anyone else's space they're in and out and what's this stuff where we got to shoot people leaving let's get them later conduct an investigation so i'm sitting back watching the news and i'm i'm just seeing these trends it's all over america and it can change we just got to go backwards
1: so let me ask you this then. you you mentioned earlier that they assigned you to one of the worst, most corrupt precincts. Absolutely. Historically and, you know, proven. So let's let's talk about that for a second, because I think it ties in a little bit, and I'll tell you where I'm going. So what are some of the things that, that you noticed or that you witnessed when you were there Um that lends to the facts or the truths that we now know about that department. Well, what I'm saying is this, you're a rook, right? You got these visions of being a cop and what that looks like to you versus now you're in it, you're in the game. And now you're seeing things from, as a lot of people like
0: to use the term, the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm. What did that look like? What it looked like it, it, it were criminal gangs on my police department, there were cops. There were cop gangs. You had white ones and you had black ones. And think, I mean, you had crack. When crack hit, it just changed the narrative. It changed all the arithmetic. Cops were getting money. They were getting money. If you roll up on somebody and you ask them how much money you got in your pocket, they say 2500 But it's really five stacks. And you keep 25 You know what I mean? You keep 25 and, and it, became, it became normal. It became a course of business. Now, the beautiful part of it was those different gangs all got taken down. The feds came in and everybody went to jail. And it didn't, it didn't make much news. But back in the day, corrupt cops didn't last long because a lot of cops that I work with, I mean, we used to tell. I mean, you know, there's different ways to tell. Now the first time I seen cops tell is during this George Floyd thing when it was just like showcased in an incredible way when the chief gets up there and gives up the tapes on dude and just says, we're not with this. I've never seen that happen. You, you know, you, you, you see these corrupt cops and it becomes part of the culture. In Georgia, Atlanta specifically, I've seen a lot of cats go to jail, jokers I love, that were dirty. You know, they they went to prison. And uh, I mean, my you know, one of my closest friends ended up doing 12 years because, uh, you know, a variety of different reasons, but they used to stamp that stuff out and it didn't make the media. It was, if it was on, it was quick. This thing now of of the the fear, I I just call it the fear of cop, fear of policing you know in the 21st century there's such a fear out there of black and brown people and this can be remedied through training you don't need any more equipment you don't need to spend millions of dollars trying to figure this out we just got to go back to like the 70s 80s and some part of the 90s and how we used to get down this thing now is out of control they got to take a breather and don't spend any more money just you know, teach interpersonal communication. That's what got me through. But how do you? But how do you account
1: for racism? You can train all day long, but if you're a racist,
0: how do you account for that? That's on the department. That's on the department. That's and and look, that's on the people that work right next to this racist. I'm from a chocolate city, and ever since I've been here, since '85, we had a mayor that was a was a person of color the whole time I was here. Most of our chiefs, to the exception of one, have all been brothers and a couple of, and you know, a sister. We had a sister, uh, Chief Beverly Harvard. We didn't, we had racists. We had, you know, rednecks, you know, on the police department, but some of them were some of the best cops I've ever seen. I mean, I, I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but a lot of them, they may be burning crosses in North Georgia when they leave. But when they were working, they were actually working, breaking windows out, saving black folks in burning cars, run up in buildings, saving babies, you know, uh, when they were in peril with fires. I've seen these guys. I don't know what's what's happening across the country now and how things are going, but in my day, we wasn't having that. You know, we just weren't having it. We used to gang up on cops that weren't fitting the mold of what we were setting, the trends we were setting out there in the street. And nobody wanted trouble from, you know, we had our own gang and our gang was taking care of these people out here in the hood. And I think we did a great job of it. I don't. I don't know. You have to tell on these folks, man. There's ways to do that, and there has been a blue wall of silence since time immemorial. But that that ish has to be over, man.
1: It has to be done with. So, where do you think this is coming from? I mean, obviously, like you said, there is a blue wall of silence, and you know, I'm pretty sure, like that, when something happens, you know, because it's okay. We don't want no one to see the behind the facade, right? We have to. But this image, you gotta, you know, put put this front out there, and it would be obviously a horrible look. Everybody knew, that, you know. Then we have to overturn cases, a lot of investigations, wake, you know, all, all kind of Pandora's box, if you will. So, but where do you think this comes from?
0: Well, I think it's just it's been so much unchecked business, I would say, in the last fifteen to twenty years, people weren't getting checked at the curb and escorted off the department. That used to be a standard practice. When you went crooked, you went up but with you know, with all the litigation that goes on, cops getting their jobs back when they're dirty as hell that wasn't back in my day. This is something new. And these cops jump from department to department. You know, if you see a cop that's been to five police departments, something's wrong with him. If he's just going sideways, going from department to department, he's running from the next indictment, the next internal affairs investigation because a lot of them get protected. You know, because nobody wants to talk about, they don't want to get sued by telling the new department that this joker was not worth his salt. You know, he was causing problems in this department. And each police department I'm in is causing that problem, there's got to be a way to tell that this is an ineffective employee. Somebody need to be a police officer. They need to carry a gun. But with all the litigation that goes on, nobody wants to fool with it. They just let this, go. they've got to stop that. But I think that's all, they're, they're going to have a national registry of, of troubled cops. That's going to happen. I mean, it, 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 they used to, when, when cops got sent away from back in my day, they never came back into law enforcement. It's like you, you know. Yeah.
1: It's got to follow you. You know, it's just like the rest of us. You know, if you have a record, it, no matter where you go, that paperwork follows you, and it, and, it, and it prevents you from doing certain things. Like you know, because you know your your history, your past
0: is ca- is always going to be your present. I mean, your credit report follows you. So what's the difference here? You know, you might you know let these cops have a credit report. <laughs> if he's got a low score, if he's got a five hundred, this joker need to be policing anywhere. So they have to do that. That's number one.
1: So recently, there's been a, and I could be wrong, but it seems like Atlanta's out of control. I mean, Buckhead, all these different things going on out there. You know, over the last couple of years, even you know, even six, seven months. Either, where do you think this is uh, coming from?
0: There's a serious gun violence problem in Atlanta right now, and I don't think they're dealing with it. There's a, in Atlanta, everything that happens in Atlanta happens in all the metro areas. My own son, who came over from the military. Uh, eight months ago, he got shot and robbed in metro Atlanta. I can't speak on the jurisdiction, but it's real close. You know, and he got shot three times, you know, reconstructed surgery. He's got a bullet in his spine forever. He's 26 years old. He's a war veteran. And that's just reality. And that, that overlap, that overflow of violence, it's shoot-em-up shoot time right now in Atlanta. And nobody seems to have the answer. I've never seen that. The police have, have, have I, don't, I don't know what they, you got to, she her administration has to figure out how to fix this. Because the only people lose when there's a cop slowdown or a shortage of people actually applying are black and brown folk. The white folks, they going to get security. Buckhead folks going to have their own personal security.
1: So that's interesting. I think you brought up an interesting point, which, which is, you know, I'm, I'm not the only one probably thinking this. But it's interesting to hear That when they don't feel, when cops don't feel like someone at the top has their back, they won't make a move. Versus any other time they break all the damn moves with impunity because they're not scared. So at the end of the day, you know,
0: it's a no-win situation. It's a stalemate. It's ugly. It's ugly. Yes, it's it's a no-win situation. Carl, I'm going to tell you, I've just never seen this. I've, I've never seen what's going on in policing right now. There's some talented cops in Atlanta and they just feel frozen right now. I mean, that's just keeping it real. Well, they're all at the strip clubs. and <laughs> <laughs> No doubt. No doubt. But it's, it's really unsafe now. I stopped carrying a gun when I retired. I have retooled back up.
1: Everywhere I go, it's... Ashley Atlanta. I'm from Harlem, and I know how to read the signs, and I haven't seen enough going on down there, and I can feel it
0: in the air, man, and I'm like, it ain't gonna be. Yep, man. It's out of control to the point that you know, jokers in the street, you know, all over my cell phone, Stess having wiped all my contacts out. They called and give me the daily reports. It's open season, man. We just getting it in. You know, some of my real, you know, real players from the street, they're a little afraid now, too, mm-hmm. because there are no rules everybody got a tool it's really disruptive to this city that if you come down here you see more skyscrapers going up and uh you know there's so much commerce and trade but our people in these quote-unquote marginalized neighborhoods are suffering while everything from 10th street north is doing well now that bucket problem that's around the mall. I'm talking about neighborhoods where people are walking outside and getting shot in these, you know, Southwest, Northwest Atlanta. It is just dangerous. I
1: right now. I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, I've had a couple of run-ins near brushes, I should say, just filling up my gas. Yeah, you know, at a, at a neighborhood south where we're talking, and um, it was pretty scary. It was pretty scary, you know. It's uh, you know to. Be right there when someone looks at you and you look back at them, and that's that moment of no, nah, I ain't gonna mess with him, but I'm gonna go mess with this person. And then you see the person next to you get yet. and the window busted out and whole thing like, yo, yeah, they was that was about to be me. That was about
0: to be. Me? I mean, just what? Not even a year ago uh, during the pandemic, the brother that was to set it off, the one named I don't know his his his, his given name. But he got, he got gunned down and killed in southwest Atlanta in a pretty decent neighborhood walking home from the liquor store. You know what I mean? Trying to go back to his world, you know, his little crash spot. Uh, He gets killed here. And, you know, this brother is a local celebrity. You know what I mean? And uh, it's just open season. There is some hot triggers out here right now. And it's real. But I'm going to tell you something. A mayor can come in and they're going to get a new mayor because, you know, Keisha Lance Bottoms. She's moving on. She's taking other opportunities. She's going to let somebody else handle it. And I believe Kasim Reed is coming back. Kasim Reed, who left, he left with a lot of controversy, but he knows how to get these cops back to work. He knows how to work it. Listen, he, you know, I, I mean, I dug him. He's a bulldog. Oh, I understand. He, hey, look, the cops are afraid of him, brother. I'm going to tell you something. Two of the best mayors since I've been down here, uh, Shirley Franklin, who's a G from Philly. Mayor Shirley Franklin ran this police department. Everybody was scared to mess up with her. It's, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with gender. It's just the way you present yourself. She didn't take no ish. Cassie Marie, he can get these cops. He said he can turn it around in 180 days. He said that on Frank Ski about three weeks ago. It's the truth. There's something about that brother. When he goes to the podium, uh, he going to get things done. He's just, he's. I know he's. there's a lot of controversy behind his administration. A lot of folks went to jail. But he didn't go. <laughs> he didn't go. and it's, That was 12 years ago now. You know, so... It's time for him to come back. That's just me, a retired police officer knowing the tone and tenor of my city. That brother can turn it around.
1: Right. Well, you know, that's typically how things happen. Sometimes, you know, things got to get turned upside down
0: for you you appreciate the person who left. You like, my bad man, come on back in here. Come on. You know, I wish Keisha would go ahead and try it again. You know, she's got a war chest. She should run and, you know, turn this thing around, make a good chief selection and make it happen. But um that's not gonna happen. Well she didn't already she already put it out there
1: that she 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 out. She can't turn Yeah, it's done. But I'm telling you, Cassine. Yeah, yeah you gotta go. Well you can't, you can't you can't just you know what y'all I changed my mind. Mm this. Yeah, works. she's out. Uh Cassim is in. He, he's gonna be the next man. Well, we'll see about that. We'll see. I mean, you know, not that I'm saying it in a <laughs>
0: confrontational way.
1: We'll see what happens.
0: Yeah. You know how it's Kasim Reed in the field and uh, he, he's he's coming back. He he makes everybody comfortable and he makes the right people uncomfortable. That's what's up. So tell me what you're doing now, man. What are you doing right now? What you doing these days? So when I retired, uh, right before I retired, actually in 2015, a production company came to me and my partner. I had a partner for, you know, if you see on this wall back here, that's The show we have is called ATL Homicide. Me and my partner, Vince Velasquez, were approached by some people we knew in the business over the years. And they wanted to shop a show around about us, our career as Atlanta police homicide detectives. You know, we were partners for like 15 years. Day in and day out, we were like, you know... We were like spouses or something because we were so you know riding with somebody eight hours a day, you know, and I was more the gritty street dude. He is more the lab coat forensics type, and it was an unbeatable combination. Uh, We got turned down by every network that does this true crime stuff (laughs) on the pitches and the scissor reels. TV One saw a two minute scissor reel and said, "We'll buy we'll buy twelve units of that off the rip." Let's get it going. So I love TV One. They put us on. And uh, that's that's what we do. We're in season three now. We're on hiatus right now. And uh, we're going to kick loose probably in the summertime.
1: Uh, so, so because I've never seen it. So just for people out there also who've never seen it. So. Uh, these are these are cases
0: that you guys have already worked these are adjudicated cases cases that have gone to trial it's a show like as as crunk as i am when i'm talking this is how i really am tv one allows me to be that this is the only suit i know how to wear my me suit and Vin is more measured uh he's more tempered and and we just it was a perfect marriage you know TV One bought this show they said, we want you guys to do your diary every Monday at 9, 8 central when the show is on. Just mm-hmm. talk about the, the, and what's interesting about this, this show, Carl, it's not all happy endings for on the police side. We also kick and talk about stories where we got acquittals, where people walked away, but we showed the process. Mm -hmm. And the one thing we prided ourselves, and I think TV1 really latched onto, is our relationships with the families of those that were killed in our city during our time and the families of the shooters and the killers. Because we had to have relationships with them too, because guess what? A couple years goes by, your shooter's family now has a, a sibling killed, and now they're on the other side. So we will go to trial and, you know, give hugs to both sides because there are no sides. Everybody loses in murder. And that's the message we give on this show. It's our diary. We talk about everything that happened and bringing a case to trial. And uh, it's amazing. And I think we found our audience with TV1. Nice, man. Congratulations
1: on that. Shout out to TV1.
0: Who's the uh, production company that does it? So it's Jupiter, Jupiter Entertainment. Nice. And uh, we, we shoot things down in Knoxville. We went into a bubble uh, last year to shoot during the uh, pandemic mm-hmm. down in Tennessee. And uh, I love those people. Uh, you know, it's, here's, here's the funny part. I was in America's Most Wanted, I don't know, 20 years ago in a case I had. And I met this producer. And his name is Sedge Torzin. And he, he they let me play myself on a case I had on America's Most Wanted back in the day. You know, back when it was must-see TV, I ended up playing myself in a reenactments. And uh, he said, one day, it's like 20 years ago, I want to do a show with you. And literally, when I retired, the phone rang, and he's like, dude, I just quit my day job. We're going to get y'all a show. And it happened. And uh, like I said, we got like 12, Do we? you think of every true crime network out there, they all slammed doors in our faces. They slammed them gently and quietly we're very humble and kind about it but they slammed the door in their face tv one was feeling us you know and the rest is history
1: nice nice man well once again congrats all right, two, two, three questions before we bounce uh if if you could go back and arrest someone from your childhood or from your past who would it be and why oh my
0: god childhood and past okay so two jokers they're both dead now. They stole my bicycle when I was twelve years old. They painted it. I knew they did it, but them brothers got—they got killed. God bless their souls. Hope they're resting in heaven. But I was real hot about that man because I conducted my own investigation and found that they stole my bike. It, you know, that's just how I, I know that that sounds corny, but. That really bothered me. No, it's not. It really not. bothered that's me, man. Great, that's actually a great story. It, it really bothered me. They stole and they, they painted it and tried to act like Painted it, going up and down my street. Now, they were, you know, they were against their fair neighbor. My father said, it's not worth the effort. He said, I had an eye on a Schwinn that was going to get you anyway. Let him have it. He said, fate's going to take care of them. And unfortunately, it did. I don't want to see anybody die, but they both died in different situations. God bless their souls.
1: Wow. wow. Okay, I want to hear that story next time. I'm definitely want to hear that story next time. All right. Next question. Uh, what was your favorite cop show growing up?
0: Wow. It's got to be Beretta. You know, I don't know if you people don't. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he had the little cocker. Yeah, it was it was it's corny now, it's it's whack, but I just loved <laughs> that he lived in the community, he had the bird going, everybody loved him in the street. I love it was must see TV for me. I wasn't like a star skin hutch dude. I liked Beretta, he was grimy, and I you know, I always liked the grime yeah. side. Damn, you were back on. Yeah. Tony Beretta, he was also a Mickey Gubatosi on the Little Rascals when he was a kid. Of course. I bioed him up. He was he's a little rascal. He's a child actor. Robert Blake. Yeah, we know Robert Blake. Absolutely. Can I say something? I've loved your work since you was at that Brownstone with that beautiful black American family. Everything you've done, I was always glued. I didn't want to like leave here without telling you that. I love how you do. I love your timing. And, you know, I met Tommy in the airport years ago and, you know, we had a quick conversation, but I always wanted to meet you. So this has been a humbling pleasure for me. No, nah, man, I
1: appreciate you coming on here. I appreciate you sharing your time. I appreciate you sharing your journey. All of it. All of it. You know, this is uh, this was meant to be. You know what I'm saying? No doubt. Uh, final thoughts. Final thoughts to everybody out there. Because uh, obviously the purpose of the show one of the main purposes of the show is obviously how we can bridge the gap so that there's no us in them. So it's
0: just us, just us. No doubt. My final thoughts are the onus is on the police across America to fix this. It's on the cop. You gotta win one neighborhood at a time, one street at a time for all this to come back together. It's on the cops. That's how it is, it's not on the citizens. Your citizens, you have to win them so you serve them correctly. And until we do that, we're going to have these problems. So I put the onus on my brothers and sisters in blue. Go back and win back those neighborhoods one street at a time. Here endeth the lesson. Ladies and gentlemen, David Quinn. Thank you, brother. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Redd, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a Mean Old Lion Media production.